0: We'll be Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Today's theme, not unlike last week's, is growing repression and resistance. We'll revisit Ron DeSantis's Florida with the historian Paul Ortiz, and then Israeli human rights lawyer Noah Levy will talk about what's provoking the largest demonstrations in that country's history. Last week we heard detail about the repressive legislation coming out of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his minions in the state legislature. Again, we'll be focusing on education mainly, But don't forget that they're looking for full-spectrum dominance. They're busting unions, tightening abortion restrictions, making life even more miserable for migrants, a topic we'll explore in a couple of weeks. Today's focus will be more on resistance than last week's, however. For that, we'll hear from Paul Ortiz, a professor of history at the University of Florida and president of the United Faculty of Florida, which represents 25,000 faculty at state colleges and universities. Paul Ortiz. a lot of us are watching uh, Florida with horror from a distance. How did this start? What turned DeSantis uh, into this uh, crusading monster?
1: Well, the run-up to the 2024 GOP nominations has made the situation, I think, even more dire than it was before. We knew we were facing a rising fascist movement. For a while, the problem was getting people to identify the threat. And I don't think that's a problem anymore. I think the fascists have really showed their hands. Um, DeSantis understands he's fighting for 70 to 75 million Trump movement votes. But the problem for him is Donald Trump is here. Well, that's our problem as well. And the problem, though, is that he's in competition with his fascist counterparts throughout the country who are all vying for that nomination. And you're going to see more and more outrageous statements made by DeSantis, made by Abbott, made by others. Basically, I'll just say, unfortunately, you haven't seen anything yet. The attacks on trans people, the attacks on gender studies, the attacks on black studies, these guys are just warming up. They're using these opening attacks because they know where the society is vulnerable. So you get a lot of street cred among fascists by attacking black studies and gender studies. And once they knock that down, the plan is to just go larger and larger and larger, but you got to start somewhere. And so gender studies, trans people, black studies, you know, is, is in Florida. Those are pretty safe targets or they thought they would be safe targets. They didn't realize that they would have a fight back in their hands and they thought we would have rolled over by now, but we're giving them a big surprise.
0: Something I find worrisome is that you hear some liberals now and then saying, well, you know, maybe you're exaggerating the DeSantis threat and there are excesses around critical race theory and I don't know about this drag queen stuff with kids, you know? That seems to be part of the strategy is to like get maybe liberals sympathizing to some degree or at least not fighting it.
1: It is, Doug. We have a phenomenon in Florida we call the DeSantis Democrat. I talked to some of these folks more during the first gubernatorial run that he made against Andrew Gillum. These are people who several years ago said that, oh, no, Ron DeSantis isn't as bad as you're making him out to be. He's actually a good pro-business Republican. Some people even try to say he was a social, social liberal. Now, I don't know anything in the man's record that would qualify him as being a social liberal, but be that as it may, people are entitled to their own opinion. But again, I think you've identified the fact that he's much more skillful a politician than most people give him credit for. To me, as a union president down here in the deep South, in a state where there's a lot of love for Augusto Pinochet, there's a lot of love for George Wallace. So Florida, in some ways, brings together some of the worst elements of past Latin American and Jim Crow South types of one-party state thinking. So yeah, there's a lot of fear. I mean, I, I don't want to underplay that. K-12 teachers are terrified right now, Doug, and I have a lot of my former students teach or used to teach in Florida schools. Many of them have left. They teach in California now, they teach in D.C., they teach in New York, because the climate of fear, especially in K-12 and public health, the climate of fear there is monumental. I mean, a public health official in this state can be disciplined or fired if they basically just tell their employees to get vaccinated against COVID. So it isn't just these attacks against higher ed or K-12. through 12. It's just we're the low-hanging hanging fruit.
0: What is the base for him? Electoral base in Florida, but also, and he also has a national base that uh, feeds him a lot of money. So could you talk about uh, the nature of his support, where it's coming from?
1: He spends a lot of time in Orange County, California, and Southern California, upstate New York. His base is generally among very affluent people. That's what makes his runs possible. That's what builds his war chest. You probably know much better than I, but he has tens of millions of dollars locked up for his presidential run. That money doesn't come from working class people. That money doesn't come from rural Florida. That comes from affluent, yacht-owning Del Mar, West Palm, you know, Miami-Dade people, people that have more money than you or I can even imagine. They love the man. But see, here's the problem again. They also, many of them still love Donald Trump. Part of our strength on the union side, is our union, talking about the United Faculty of Florida, was founded by people who escaped the Pinochet dictatorship. Hernan Vera, one of the great scholars of comparative race and ethnicity, family barely escaped Chile. If they would have been stayed in Chile, they would have been executed. A lot of our early union members were children of Holocaust victims. And so when they put our union together in the early 70s, They made intellectual freedom, academic freedom, the capstone of our collective bargaining contract because they came from environments where they knew what fascism and Nazism were. And so that's the strength of our fight back right now is we still have some of those older folks are still around. Not not many, unfortunately, but um, they're kind of putting more spine into our, you know, into our fight back. And they're saying "A, a man who lost 27 family members in the Holocaust. Who banged on my door on October 14, 2021? It was the day after my university had tried to stop three political science professors from testifying in a voting rights case. This man, retired Jewish colleague, told me, Paul, Florida is Germany 1930. You hold the line now, or everything is lost. That's all I needed to hear. I mean, I was like, okay, we're going to hold the line, you know? People have expected us to roll over. And again, I don't want to minimize what's happening. We're losing people. We're losing really good African-American uh, scholars. We're losing a lot of great Chinese scholars. The anti-Chinese racism here is epic. You have these people who can't, I mean, they don't know the difference between the Chinese Communist Party and a, a Chinese professor in environmental studies. And and that's on purpose. You know, that's something that, that Trump himself
0: tries to solve. What inspired this? I mean, we talk about European fascism, classic European fascism, Italy, Germany. There were uh, radical workers. There were strikes. There was a threat of communism, socialism. You could see fascism as a response to that kind of threat. What do you see um, as the threat from the left that has been driving these forces of reaction? There
1: are similarities between what's happening now and what happened in countries like Germany or Spain in the 20s and 30s or in Chile in the 1970s. But there are surface similarities. So the situation here on the ground is much different. I mean, there is no powerful socialist or communist movement, but there is Black Lives Matter. There are many younger people. There are many faith-based communities. I mean, okay, so let, let's look at DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. This is something that DeSantis has identified as a threat to his base's way of life. They don't want diversity. They don't want equity. They don't want uh, inclusion. Every church, mosque, synagogue that I know of in the state of Florida has a DEI committee or a DEI statement. Now, I'm not in contact with all the churches, synagogues, and mosques, but in general, even corporations have DEI statements, and especially Black Lives Matter. There is a continuing Black Lives Matter movement. It isn't what it was in the spring of 2020. But there are many younger people, especially connecting with older black freedom movement people, Chicana movement people that are questioning the the existing system. Are they always anti-capitalist? Maybe not. But some of them are. Are they always anti-imperialist? Maybe not. But a lot of them actually are. If you look at groups like the Dream Defenders, they have very explicit anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist politics. These are the things that the DeSantis people sees as threats. Now, again, these are not mass parties. The Dream Defenders are not a mass party, but they do represent um, a threat to the existing racist status quo. And DeSantis knows that. Do they have the power to take the power? Probably not. But they're, they're perceived as a threat nonetheless. Do public sector unions in Florida have the ability to take power in the state of Florida? Absolutely not. But we have enough power, Doug, to be able to defend gender studies. United Faculty of Florida, my union has 25,000 members statewide. Okay. So that's not a mass political movement, but it's a lot of people who all have collective bargaining agreements who have vowed to defend black studies, have vowed to defend trans people, have vowed to defend gender studies. And that pisses DeSantis the hell off. And he can't achieve his goals unless he wipes us out. That's why when January 2023 started, the first attack he launched was not HB 999. It was the anti-union attack because we're the only force dug left in the entire state that's statewide. We're the only thing left standing. We have chapters in every single county of the state and we drive the DeSantis people nuts because we're the people who say, hey, a high school senior should be reading Toni Morrison a high school junior should be reading Alice Walker. And that drives those people nuts. They they can't take it, man. They just
0: cannot take it. What happened in New College? Did they have a union collective bargaining agreement or not?
1: They have a collective bargaining agreement at New College. And the reason that DeSantis went after New College is it's, it's a very small institution. We have 60,000 students here at UF. UCF has even more than we do. New College has, what, 700 students. And so... The state sees New College as the low-hanging fruit there. And so they went after it. They're dismantling the the institution right now. But the union is holding strong. The union is engaged in a fight back. The alumni, the parents, the students at New College are fighting back. This is what I wish we could get the national media to kind of pay more attention to. They're really into the the terrible news. Uh, Yeah, fascism is terrible. Cover that. Please do cover that. But also cover the fight back the people at New College, and we're backing them too from here. All the union chapters are supporting the New College folks. I mean, in the short term, the state can do a lot of damage to
0: New College, and it is. Christopher Rufo. I mean, he's like walking damage, that guy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And see, DeSantis, when he first came into power, one of the early projects that this guy Corcoran, you know, who's the new so-called president at New College, they try to pull a big scam Jefferson County, Florida was supposed to be the nation's laboratory for the state seizing control of an entire school district and turning it over to a corporation. And that's exactly what DeSantis and Richard Corcoran did to Jefferson County. It was atrocious. Jefferson County is a small rural county in the Florida Panhandle, and the state went in and literally destroyed the educational system, gave it to a private corporation. There was so much graft and corruption in that whole deal, they ended up quitting and say, we can't do this. And, you know, and, and so right now has a second life as the head of a college. And it's it's really pathetic. But again, the fight back there really, Doug, is just beginning. No one in Florida is, is quitting, by the way. That's really amazing. It's inspiring to be part of that fight back. Um, but at the same time, why should we have to fight these things? I mean,
0: damn. I'm speaking with Paul Ortiz, president of the United Faculty of Florida, and professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville. I saw you uh, speaking at a conference uh, from a, a month ago, and uh, you had said that you're somewhat insulated from this by the collective bargaining agreement. I also gather you have tenure, although that will um, be out the window if DeSantis gets his way. Your younger or more vulnerable colleagues, um, how does it affect what they're teaching? How does it affect uh, life in the classroom?
1: Well, it has has a, a deep and, and terrible impact. It's interesting. I mean, I've had older colleagues who have told me, well, Paul, you know, maybe we need to sit this one out. You know, maybe I'm going to start pulling back on what I'm teaching. My role as a union president and as, as a, a faculty member who does have tenure is I try to put out as much as I can. Look, I'm not changing a damn thing. Everyone knows I teach Latino studies. I teach black studies. Everyone knows I'm a dissenter. And so I'm going to just continue teaching what I teach Based upon rigorous scholarship, this week, my labor history students are reading the collected writings of Lucy Parsons. I'm not going to change that one bit. I don't care what the state says. Sue me. Arrest me. I dare them to. But yeah, I have a certain privilege. But to me, Doug, the privilege increasingly in the South is much more a privilege connected to the collective bargaining agreement than to tenure. Let's be honest. Whenever university administrators are polled about whether or not they support tenure, the majority of them don't support tenure. Is it going to last as an institution in the United States? I hope it does, but it may it may not because, look, corporations don't like freedom of speech. Again, I think of a person like Lucy Parsons. I mean, I tell my students very clearly you know, who she was. I tell them this was her theory of private property. This is her theory of violence. She tells poor people, stop getting picked on. If you don't want to get picked on, then you have to fight back. And if that means using armed self-defense. Then so be it, because capital is going to beat the hell out of you. And so, yeah, if you don't fight back, they're just going to destroy you. Okay. So to me, if you can't teach Lucy Parsons, why would you even bother to teach a labor history class? You know, if you can't teach Kimberly Crenshaw, why would you even bother to teach a Black Studies class? And the sad thing is that especially in Black Studies. Um, I know most concretely about Black Studies throughout the state of Florida. And, and what I know is that there are younger faculty, but also older faculty as well, who are just who are scared and who have taken out parts of their syllabi that they feel might get negative coverage by the state. This is what started happening three years ago, Doug. I, I started hearing colleagues here at UF and other professors and other campuses say, well, well, what would Ron DeSantis think about this syllabus? What would Ron DeSantis think about this grant proposal? I try to like deal with that on a one-on-one basis and say, what the hell does it matter? What did the traditions of your discipline say about this if you're an economist or a biologist? Is this sound science? Is this rigorous? That's what you should be concerned about, not what the state says or does not say. Anticipatory obedience has become a big concept here in Florida, and we use the term to identify the fact that even when UF tried to stop the political scientists from giving the testimony of voting rights, I don't think Ron DeSantis ordered UF to to do what it did. I I just think that UF is anticipating what they think Ron DeSantis wants them to do. Frankly, I don't think he'd give a darn about that voting rights case. But again, you know, you have administrators and such saying, "Well, you know, we better be careful here." And that's one of the real threats we're facing.
0: What about uh, folks up in places like Brooklyn who say, well, you know, that sounds terrible, but I'm safe here in my blue bubble. What do you say to that?
1: That bubble is shrinking, Doug, rapidly. I mean, I do panels all across the country thanks to the capitalist miracle of Zoom. Two years ago, people were saying things like that up in Brooklyn. They're not saying that anymore. Increasingly, they're understanding that the, the struggle, if they're not already facing it, is coming their way the old notion that you could just isolate the South or parts of the mountain West, you know, and say, well, you know, we'll draw a ring around these places where we're lost. You know, again, I mentioned up at the top of the hour, I mean, basically a lot of the funding, a lot of the support for what's happening in Florida is coming from out of the state. There's a lot of support coming from the blue States in terms of wealthy ruling class people. I think that's what people need to like, Recover and, be, and maybe just because I'm teaching labor history now, but Americans need to understand that we have a ruling class in the society. I don't care what they say, and you can trace it all throughout U.S. history, and um, it, it's never it's never been gone. I mean, it's the the society was founded on the idea of the many and the few. It's in the Federalist Papers. It's in the Shays' Rebellion. It's in the early uh, Supreme Court struggles. They use that metaphor, the many and the few. You're either on this side or that side. And what we're seeing in Florida is very similar. I mean, I don't know if there's even any left or right in Florida. What I do know is that there are people gunning with the rich and affluent and ruling class people. They're the ones that took over New College. Most of those people from the Board of Trustees, they're not even Floridians. They're wealthy, affluent people who are agents of the ruling class who have come to Florida to destroy our public institutions. The long-term goal here is to wipe out public education. I've talked to some of these people, Doug. I talked to some of them when the Jefferson County, Florida struggle was ongoing. They despise public institutions. I mean, they despise people like you and I, of course, but, but their big target is public education. Their big target is public health. Their big target is Social Security. It's Medicare. They want to destroy everything. I mean, sometimes I think these people are the only true revolutionaries left because some of my allies are saying things like, well, Paul, you know, maybe the union should open a dialogue with those people. I'm like, look, we always have tried to open a dialogue. They don't give a shit. <laughs> Yeah. They want to kill you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if they could, I mean, but what we taught the Richard Spencer people here is kind of what we're teaching the Ron DeSantis people. I mean, we retired Richard Spencer in Gainesville, Florida. And the way we did that was we taught them before he brought his minions that we fight back down here. And we told them, look, in the Deep South, even liberals carry guns and y'all are not marching through our neighborhoods. And when we got finished with him, Richard Spencer left the University of Florida and a few weeks later, he said, you know, this is not fun anymore. <laughs> Poor guy. Uh... Poor guy, yeah, exactly. But Doug, you know, history tells us you got to stand up to these people. You know, I don't want to over what's happening now because, yeah, people are afraid. And, you know, if you're not represented by union which most people in Florida, unfortunately, are not. You know, if you're in the public health sector, my God, it's horrible. I mean, I talked to pediatricians, Doug, research scientists who have been told by their institutions, point blank, don't do research on COVID and children because Ron DeSantis may not like it. If I could find one anecdote of, of, of damnation for what's happening now, it would be that. I mean, just imagine, again, a public health official who can't even tell their own employees I think it's a good idea to wear a mask inside. I think it's a good idea if you get vaccinated by COVID. But remember, we're in a state where the governor of the state makes fun of people who wear masks. You know, we're in a state where where the governor talks about how terrible unions are. Unions are, you know, we're part of the capitalist institution. But the way he talks about unions, I mean, we might as well be waving red and black flags.
0: So in conclusion, let's talk a bit more about that fight back, because you've talked some about the union's role in it, but what about outside the union? What's the nature of of, uh, how you're fighting against uh, DeSantis and the forces of darkness?
1: Two weeks ago, February 23rd, we had a statewide walkout. High school and college students, you know, thousands of high school and college students walked out, Doug, in support of Black Studies and in opposition to the state of Florida's ban um, and censorship of Black Studies. And The fight back there is people, you know, most of whom weren't even union members, walking out. We did teach-ins. We did a big teach-in here at the University of Florida. I haven't seen anything like it since like 2003 at the second Gulf War. I mean, there were hundreds of students at this Black Studies teach-in. One of her handouts was very powerful. Great Black scholars, Kimberly Crenshaw, people like Angela Davis, Robin Kelly, you know, all people censored out of the, the the high school AP African-American studies curriculum. So we had a handout that we distributed with their names, red pen marks through their names. And we had a three-hour Black Studies teach-in featuring their work and, you know, the work of Black Studies generally, Black queer studies, Black women's studies, you know, labor, et cetera, et cetera. So the fight back is everywhere. Just on February 23rd, it was about defending Black Studies. And the back is, you know, I talked to, I've talked to parents groups in South Florida. They're starting this thing called, um, it, it's like a book club thing where they're actually picking books that their school district has pulled off the shelves and they're doing reading groups around those books. And they're inviting people in their community to read these books. So, you know, if you think Toni Morrison's Beloved is Pornography, we're going to have a reading group around it and prove to you it is not. You can either join the group or you can continue spouting your bullshit. And so these are the things that I think are happening all across the state. People are saying, you know, this is a long struggle. And are we going to have a lot of theater and a lot of, you know, frightening stuff happening during the state legislature? Sure. Our state legislature is opening tomorrow. And typically, Doug, day one is bash teacher day. But it's been that way long before DeSantis got here. I guess the closing thing I would, would share with people is that it isn't just about these individuals. It's about a movement that, again, wants to wipe out public education. And it knows that it's a great time to like make that pitch because, unfortunately, we have too many people in the society. They didn't have to fight for public education. They didn't have to fight for Social Security. They're getting a little lazy. I, I'm, I'm going to sound condescending, but... I mean, I grew up in a generation that let Roe v. Wade fall, and this is how it happened. We, You know, people said, my generation said, well, you know, it's a law of the land. The Republicans will dare not attack it. Total BS. Idiotic. The minute you stop fighting for something, you're going to lose it in this type of society.
0: Yeah, because the ruling class is tireless, or they can pay people to do the work for them. They're
1: tireless, yeah. I mean, good Lord. I mean, you know, reading Lucy Parsons, like, she would walk into a city, she wouldn't even give a talk, and then have her in jail. Well, how do they know she was coming? Yeah, they have networks and and they talk to each other and they know our weaknesses. And so they like I think you said, well, you know, um, I support the LGBT community, but, you know, maybe the drag queen thing is a little is going a little too far. And see DeSantis knows that. And he knows that there are people who say, well, I support black writers, but, you know, maybe students shouldn't read Beloved until they get to college. DeSantis knows that. And so to me, now is the time to defend black studies. It's the time to defend trans people, to defend queer people. Let's not play into the hands of DeSantis and and Trump. And believe me, Trump is still the power here, Doug. Let's not mince words. He is still the power. And it's just that there's a fissure now in the ruling class. And if we think carefully and we think strategically, we can survive. If we fold up our tents, then we're, we, we know we're going to lose. But again, to me, as a kid, I didn't grow up in a left tradition. But reading when I was able to, people like, you know, Marty Glaberman or C.L.R. James or, you know, Kropotkin or Lucy Parsons, you live for these moments when you, when you can identify splits in
0: the ruling class. And there is one right now. That was Paul Ortiz, professor of history at the University of Florida and president of United Faculty of Florida. Those of us in Brooklyn and Berkeley might feel insulated from the repressive atmosphere, but that is highly unsound thinking. It's an evasion of solidarity with those under the hammer and an inexcusable complacency in the face of the desire of DeSantis and those like him to generalize their repressive apparatus. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the last roundup from 1986 by the pride of New Jersey, the Feelys. Next, turmoil in Israel, where Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu's government, a coalition of his right-wing Likud party and even further right parties, is facing some resistance. The country is seeing the largest demonstrations in its history and dissent even within the sacrosanct military. What's going on? To answer that question, we're joined by Noah Levy, an attorney who specializes in human rights law. She's secretary of Hadash, a socialist and anti-Zionist party with four seats in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. She's also head of its Tel Aviv branch. The Jewish power party that Noah Levy talks about traces its origins to Meyer Kahane's Koch party, which was banned for its advocacy of racist violence in the 1980s. Its descendant, too, advocates racist violence, but apparently that's not a ban-worthy offense anymore. Noah Levy. So let's talk first about Hawara. Is that how you pronounce the town? Yes. I've seen some Israelis and even the Financial Times calling what happened a-, a pogrom. What's going on there? Why is this a center of such violence and attention?
2: I think we need to, to take a, one step uh, backwards and understand what is happening right now in the Israeli politics uh, generally. After five rounds of elections, the government that we're facing in the last three months is a government of the right wing, which is based heavily and depends heavily on on the ultra extremist settlers, colonialist settlers. These colonialist settlers were in the parliament also before, but they were smaller and unimportant in a way. In the territories, these colonizers, these settlers, what they do regularly for the last 20 years, is trying to push the Palestinians outside of the what's called the C areas. The West Bank is divided by the Oslo Agreement to areas A, B, and C. A is the highly populated Palestinian cities. B is a bit less, let's say. And C is an area in which uh, is uh, heavily populated by the, the settlers. The settlers are trying very hard to push the Palestinians' villages of the sea areas to leave their territories and actually have a kind of an ethnic cleansing of, uh, they call it free will. Free will is a funny expression when what the settlers do is uh, repeatedly harass the children, uh, attack the villagers when they go to their uh, agriculture work, burn trees and crops, and now also houses. So this is like the background. These settlers who are doing this on small scale... Uh, independently in the West Bank, and were, let's say, the authorities, the military authorities in the West Bank were repeatedly looking the other way and letting them do their, what should be called terrorist attacks against Palestinians. Now, their leaders have come to the government and became the biggest support uh, in Netanyahu's regime. Netanyahu is facing a trial and he needs the support of these settlers and therefore they get a free hand. And then two settlers were killed in a terrible attack by uh, Palestinians from Hawara but this Palestinian who killed them was killed by the Israeli uh, security forces right away and the settlers wanted still wanted revenge it wasn't enough for them. So they went to their vi- to his village the village of Once again, the Palestinian terrorists who attack Jewish settlers and decided to give their revenge on this village. And in one night, they uh, burned close to 40 houses, over 100 cars, damaged uh, goods and equipments, and also uh, shot dead a Palestinian paramedic who just returned from volunteering in the disaster in Turkey. In the aftermath of the earthquake,
0: I've read in Haratz a little while ago that uh, there were videos on the main street in Hawara showing settlers dancing with soldiers. So, is this being done with official approval?
2: It's hard to say, honestly. The army is is at the moment divided. The leadership of the of the Israeli army right now, all the high rank officers and the highest uh, units, let's say stand in strong objection to the current government and the, uh, the main uh, titles in the, in the newspapers in Israel in the last week or so, repeatedly dealing with the problem of mass um, refusal from the high-rank officers, the pilots, the military doctors, all the, let's say, more educated, stronger, high, high-class military uh, ranks. They refused to collaborate with this government and, uh, and they, they object what happened in Hawa. But at the ground level, where, where most of the, of the recruits actually go, when most of the soldiers actually go, there is a growing percentage of support in the settlements movement, uh, in uh, the extremist uh, colonialist parties, and uh, generally in the idea of ethnic cleansing in the West Bank. Yes, and this division is what we see right now. And on one hand, you have officers that uh, refuse to serve under the government. And on the other hand, you have soldiers who are dancing in the street with settlers the day after the program.
0: Netanyahu has been around a long time, but he seems to get worse uh, with every iteration. What's exactly, you you alluded to this earlier, but let's go into some more detail. The political composition of this government and, and this political base.
2: First of all, you need to. I I mentioned Netanyahu's trial. So Netanyahu uh, is on criminal trial for corruption in uh, three different cases, and there's a fourth that is, uh, let's say, on the fire, not not yet in court. There's criminal trials. If he's being convicted, of course, uh, he won't be able to continue to be prime minister, and he might even serve time in prison. To go against this trial, Netanyahu has opened a great, um, let's say, attack on the judicial system. There is, since the government has been uh, appointed, there is uh, a surprisingly fast and a rapid wave of legislation against the judicial system in Israel in order to have a lot, enough pressure on them to stop the Netanyahu trials. Now, all of this government is the government that supports Netanyahu against the accusations against him. So he's standing there with Utsma Yehudit, Jewish power would be the, the translation of their name, who is the most extremist um, right-wing settler-colonialist uh, party. With him are also the ultra-Orthodox, uh, the Haredis who are generally more neutral, between right and left in the Israeli politics but the previous government the government um that was also right but had some left in it and was uh, uh without Netanyahu was a government that acted forcefully against the ultra orthodox trying to recruit to them to the army in large numbers against their will and also tried to limit the budgets that they get the funds that they get to their uh, yeshivas, their um, studies, and in other fields as well, they tried to limit their power. So the ultra-Orthodox are now uh, strongly supporting uh, Netanyahu's regime, seeing as the one that can save them from the, um, let's, say, let's say, secular, most more mainstream uh, leadership. I believe that that was a big mistake of the previous government that we're paying for right now. The last five rounds of elections showed that Netanyahu has approximately 50% of the population in support of him. 50% means that he couldn't get uh, a strong majority in the last four elections. What happened in this round of elections, it needs to be taken into account, is something that um, maybe just like in the US, the, the last rounds of elections make us aware of the problems with our election system. And our election system... Is uh, thus that is works thus that uh, uh, a party that doesn't get more than uh, four and a half mandates, which are uh, I think close to five percent of the votes, is not getting into the parliament at all, and all of his power, its power is being dissolved and reintegrated into the system uh, equally between all the parties, which means if you by chance have two parties in the left wing who almost pass the threshold of the minimum percentage to get in the parliament, but don't, which is what happened to us this round of elections, then the outcome is that actually the left has lost 8% of its power to be redistributed by all the parties in the parliament. So two parties did not pass the threshold. One was Balad, the National Palestinian Party, and the other was Meretz, the Zionist left uh, party. They both had four mandates, but not 4.3 or 4.4 as was demanded to get into the parliament, which means all the votes that they were given, close to 8% of the votes in total, uh, were taken off the left wing and redistributed by all the parties in the parliament, which meant the right wing actually got a step forward. And Netanyahu got the majority, even though he didn't have the majority of the votes themselves.
0: The war in the judiciary, how much of that is uh, about Netanyahu's own personal difficulties with the law? And how much of that is about an attempt to consolidate authoritarian power, you know, like Victor Orban?
2: That's a good question that we all ask ourselves if Netanyahu is really into it only because of his trial or if it's actually uh, a part of uh, of a larger shift. And um I think that uh, the arguments in favor of saying that this is actually uh, a shift that him and his uh, supporters desired anyway is being uh, if you look at, at the other reforms that they are pushing forward at the same time, with a judicial uh, uh, shift, for instance, and I think that maybe in I'm not sure in the US uh, all the all information about all the reforms that they advance are being is being uh, reported. For instance, they have a new bill saying that uh, they could have searches in people's houses without warrants. That's another reform that they push forward now. Uh, another reform uh, is the uh, opening of um, of many many many. Uh, new volunteer units that accompany the work of the police. When these volunteer units will be armed, and their recruitments is are is done by non governmental organization that are um, working closely with Jewish power, with the settler colonialists uh, extremist party. So they actually double forces of police. With right wing, with right wing activists that will be uh, armed in the streets. So yes, I can say that generally we are. And, and they, another reform that they did was deleting the article from the law that uh, bans the police from uh, interfering in political affairs, which means now legally the police can interfere with political affairs. Yes, I believe that the government in Israel is going to a more um, totalitarian direction. Uh, Netanyahu's trial is both the engine, it was part of the, the, the reason that pushed them into this, uh, into this gap, but they, it's also part of the fuel, because a lot of the people, the, let's say the people that, that support them, see Netanyahu's trial as uh, persecution against their leader, And it actually uh, helps their support in these larger reforms that will harm civil rights in any other aspect as well.
0: I'm speaking with the Israeli human rights lawyer, Noah Levy. If Netanyahu has the support of about half the population, that would suggest that whatever opposition there is to him is pretty divided. If you got 50%, you're doing pretty well, uh, especially if there's not much in the way of of a united opposition. Is there just this giant vacuum to his left?
2: Yes, I believe the left is uh, for the last many years, had a vacuum. Ideologically speaking, I believe that you need to understand it in the background of the question of what is Zionist left. Zionist means that you want the country for the Jews. Left means that you want equal rights for everyone. Let's say the conflict between these two uh, ideas became more and more, uh, came to the surface, and a lot of people started seeing the Zionist left as uh, hypocrites, you know, they're hypocrites because they say they want equal rights, but they actually want Jewish rights. So they want the same thing as Netanyahu, only they phrase it in different words, and this is the criticism that was done upon them. Of course, they are not uh, totalitarians in their uh, demands, but uh, the ethnic nationality of Israel is problematic. And uh, the fact that the left refused to, to give, let's say, um, progressive opinions about this subject, uh, I believe that uh, caused it the fact that theres there wasn't any accepted strong leadership in the left in the last uh, 10
0: years. This character um, Smotrich, right, Pizol Smotrich, is that how you pronounce it? Described himself as a fascist homophobe who wants Huaro wiped out. But I also saw this video a few days ago of a young woman who wanted to see the town wiped out as well, and she called herself, she's sort of a fascist. I mean, is this word getting acceptable in Israeli discourse?
2: I don't believe that it's getting uh, accepted. It is a criticism that the left is on the right wing. They use the word nationalist in Hebrew. It's a bit more of of a light term. It sounds lighter when you translate it to Hebrew. But the term fascist itself, well, some of the people who take it do it like um, cynically in order to, to ridicule on the left. You can see Ayelet Chakid, the previous uh, uh, minister of law, of justice, she had a, a campaign saying that uh, she uses a perfume and everybody calls it fascist and she doesn't care to use the fascist uh, perfume because she knows that it's actually democracy. So this is what they argue. They say, we get the, ma- the majority of the votes so we can do everything, anything. And this
0: is not fascism, it's democracy. There have been a lot of demonstrations over the last few weeks. How significant are they and uh, who's uh, turning out for them? The demonstrations in Israel were
2: never as, lo- as big and as meaningful as they are these days. They grow from Saturday, from weekend to weekend. Each weekend they become they break the record that Israel and, uh, had in the past. In the last three weeks, in addition to the weekends, there have been uh, unofficial strike days in the middle of the week, where in, in weekdays and workdays, uh, hundreds of thousands leave their workplace and go to demonstrate in the street as well. The leaders of this, uh, of this wave are largely, we must say, uh, the same leaders of the um, mainstream Zionist left that led the the last government before Netanyahu. Outside Israel, they would not be considered left because they are militarists. They believe in uh, Jewish supremacy uh, in Israel. and uh, But they are surely against Netanyahu and his moves. They are militarists and they believe that the military should uh, govern itself and not that the politicians and the colonialist settlers should govern the military. And therefore, they put a lot of money and a lot of power. You have all the army generals, all the old army generals, all joining this huge uh, wave of protests. Also, the big uh, capitalists in Israel, the high-tech companies, are very much afraid of the economic fall that is going to come after the judicial uh, shift They give a lot of money to the protest and they are the one that leads the the unofficial strikes because they just uh, announce independent strikes in support of the resistance to the government and they release all the workers uh, to the protests. So it means that these are huge protests, the biggest that Israel has ever seen. The left is also present there. There is uh, an anti-occupation, anti-apartheid bloc in any of these uh, protests. But the biggest numbers actually come from the mainstream supporters of the Israeli army and the Israeli uh, high tech.
0: Now let's return to something you just uh, meant, brought up a little while ago, uh, the Zionist left, the contradiction of being Zionist and left, the, the contradiction of having a Jewish state, and it's also democratic. Can those contradictions endure over time? This is the big
2: question in Israel I believe these days behind all the all the dramatic uh, events that we are that we are facing. I personally belong to Kadash, the which is uh, I'm not Zionist and I believe that Jewish and democratic states is a contradiction uh, when 20% of the population in Israel is Palestinian uh, inside the green line I mean without the occupied territories uh, saying that Israel will be a Jewish state means that democracy will be only for the Jews which was the situation in the last 75 years. Having said that, there is still a big political stream in Israel that believes that Jewish and democratic uh, could work well together, that the state could be Jewish in its uh, character and its um, culture, but also give equal rights to the minorities. These people are uh, losing their base of, uh, of leadership as the main leaders of Israel, but they still have uh, great support, especially from the, as I said, the strongest institution. The capital, the army is still in support of them. I don't believe it can endure because this contradiction is, uh, uh, has brought us to the point where the Zionist left cannot present uh, a real leadership that uh, could consolidate enough support to win elections.
0: Does the occupation um, help? Keep the country together in a sense, uh, creating this common enemy um, that uh, can paper over those fissures within the society?
2: Generally, yes, of course. Uh, Occupation, and and it's not only occupation, when we have to say it's also the ongoing war effort that Israel brings forward to all of its neighboring countries. For instance, today Israel attacked. uh, civil airport in Aleppo, Syria, causing casualties in uh, in a civil. Uh, I mean, in the middle of a, a huge city. For some reason, these uh, incidents are not being uh, replied or even uh, noted in the international sphere. But uh, but yes, Israel keeps on uh, engaging in acts of hostility with all of its neighbors, and the situation of being uh, what's called we call sometimes. They call sometimes a villa in the jungle. We are the only advanced European Western country in a sea of enemies. This picture, of course, helps consolidate both the support of the government and the nationalist regime in Israel, and both uh, get the support of the Western countries who look for allies in the Middle East.
0: It seems like a pretty grim picture. Do Do you feel like your society is falling to pieces?
2: Israel is not a simple place to live in. Uh, a lot of people are leaving, actually, uh, as we speak. The last uh, few months have been uh, shown a, a great uh, jump in the number of Israelis that are seeking to get second passports in order to be able to leave the country. I am not among these people. I believe that you know I, we belong here. Uh, this is our country, and we need to to go past these uh, obstacles. Yes, Israel is a pawn of the whole world, okay? If Israel would stand in front of the Palestinians by itself and not be the, the, um, the long hand of uh, the United States of the, the, and all the Western world, then it could not continue in this ongoing uh, policy of occupation and uh, harboring wars to all our neighbors. But we serve as the long hand of the West and of the U.S., which supports our military ende- endeavors and the spiritual fascination of the whole Western world, of the whole world, actually, from Jerusalem and the sacred places. This whole makes the conflict between us and the Palestinians much harder to solve and much harder to get past the apartheid and start being part of a democratic order. But um, we have to go there. We
0: don't have any other choice. That was Noah Levy, a human rights attorney and secretary of Hadash, a socialist and anti Zionist party. She's the head of its Tel Aviv branch. A few endnotes. The 2019 campaign ad for Eilat Shaked, the far right former justice minister that Levy talks about, is a remarkable document. It features Shaked, who is quite beautiful, striking what Heret's columnist Alison Kaplan Sommer called sultry poses, in a mock ad for a perfume called fascism, while equally sultry voiceovers intone the words judicial reform and restraining the Supreme Court, in Hebrew. She concludes by saying this fascism scent smells like democracy. Those intoned slogans are the initiatives Netanyahu's government is now pursuing, which aren't the least bit fascist, you see. Speaking of fascism, in the run-up to a meeting on Thursday with the new Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney, whose political pedigree can be directly traced to Mussolini, Netanyahu said he's unworried about that lineage. The real danger, he says, comes from the European left's hatred of Israel. Also on Thursday, there were massive demonstrations across Israel, with protesters blocking a major highway in Tel Aviv and approach roads to the main international airport. That delayed Bibi's departure for Rome and his meeting with Maloney by several hours. Levy's description of the opposition to Netanyahu sounds a lot like a lot of the opposition to Trump here. Not particularly progressive, offering no positive vision, just opposed to the excesses and vulgarities of the two personalities and their followers. And finally, a few more words on resistance within the military. As Noah Levy pointed out, most of it is coming from elite soldiers. Barak Ravid of Axios reported the other day that some include F-15 pilots, the aviators who routinely bomb Syria, and would be expected to bomb Iranian nuclear facilities should Bibi decide to do that. The government's reaction was to denounce the pilots as weaklings who should go to hell. Levy points out that the officer corps is largely drawn from the old Ashkenazi labor Zionist elite, and the ranks are increasingly populated by non-elites, including settlers with reactionary politics. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this some of The Oncoming Day, a 1990s song by the New Zealand band The Chills. By coincidence, Ron DeSantis's hometown in Florida has the same name as the birthplace of The Chills, Dunedin. Till next week, bye.